Welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle. This is your host, Megan Reardon Jarvis, and I am really, really honored today to be sitting down with Jay Newton-Small. Jay, thank you so much for being here. Megan, thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited about this conversation. I We have a mutual friend and I became aware of your work sort of as it, as it was unfolding and in this organic way. I'm really excited for you to share with the audience and I asked you to do this because I think one of the most transformative things that can happen in grief is when people from their own experience are able to fill a hole that they needed filled for them, but instead are able to show up with resources that are going to benefit everyone. So I'm really excited for you to talk to folks. Can you, so you're the founder and the CEO of Memory Well. Can you talk to folks about what your work is and maybe even tell us the story of how you came into the world of grief and loss? My dad was diagnosed with Alzheimer's when I was still in college, basically a senior in college. And it was really early onset. He was 58. We'd had no family history of it. So it came as a total shock. And my mother cared for him for the first 10 years after that diagnosis. And they moved down to Florida and stopped traveling. They'd traveled a ton before that and and really just sort of hunkered down. But she was really embarrassed by the diagnosis. She was one of those people for whom mental illness or neurological disease was like not a thing. And she just didn't want to admit that this was happening. I think she was in severe denial for basically a decade. And so she basically didn't go to any sport groups, wouldn't have any help at home, wouldn't like talk about it at all to anybody. And increasingly as his mind deteriorated, I mean, he had a good 10 years, but towards the end of his life or the, her life, he was, he, he was really hard to deal with. And that stress of caregiving by herself, um, ultimately induced a stress induced brain aneurysm. She died in 2011 and after 10 years of taking care of dad and it was super sudden, she like literally dropped dead kind of in the middle of hosting a dinner party for 14 people. And And her priest, I think, knew right away because like she'd blown both of her pupils that she was gone, but she actually lingered for a few days after that. Like I had to make the decision to unplug her, which was also something we can talk about and kind of terrible, like in a lot of ways, because we had done all of the advanced planning for my dad because he'd been sick, but we hadn't done anything for my mom. And so I had no idea, like, did she want to donate her organs? Did she not? How, what extreme measures did she want taken to her life or not? And, and I just had no clue what to do there. And so it made her death and her passing, I think all the worse. After that, I became my dad's primary caregiver for the last five years of his life. And I brought him up to DC, had him with me for a while, then moved him into a community. And it was ultimately my experience caregiving for him and trying to transition him into his second community when he was actually super, he got super violent in the, in for one year that I ended up writing down a story and it really transformed his care for those caregivers. And that was the beginning of memory. So first of all, that, that story, one of the things that I do with folks is I do a lot of writing from early grief so that they can do what you've just done, which is give a manageable narrative around an impossible story. But that story that you just told is a pretty extraordinarily heavy from a daughter's perspective story. So I just want to honor that, that, and, and even as you were talking about, can you tell us about memory? Well, can you tell us when you say, and that is how it began, tell us what it is and what does it do? 
So yeah, so my background is in journalism and I was four years at Bloomberg News covering the Bush White House and politics and then 10 years at Time Magazine covering everything from the Obama White House to the Arab Spring. And, and so it brings essentially the talents of journalism into the world of healthcare. And when I say that, I think there's a lot of things that journalists do that can be helpful in healthcare. And, and so the first sort of iteration of the company, I, it was based off of really my experience with what happened with my dad. As I said, I was moving my dad into his second community and he was super violent that year. He got kicked out of the first community when he like punched a nurse, nearly broke her jaw, got kicked out, escaped actually that community because it's a locked facility and was found, I don't know, three or four hours later, kind of walking down Connecticut Avenue with no pants on. Thank God it was summertime. And so he, I needed to move him to another community. There weren't that many, frankly, that would accept violent Alzheimer's patients. And the ones that did were pretty terrible. I was lucky enough to find one. It doesn't really exist anymore. It was called Copper Ridge out Mm -hmm. in like rural Maryland. And at least the former, it got bought and it's just been like, it's a very different entity than entity than what it was before. But It was essentially a research facility that was started in conjunction with the National Institutes of Aging and Johns Hopkins, and they had on staff neuropsychologists who were there 24, like all the time, and they would do brain scans of the residents there to understand the progression of the disease and understand which parts of their brain were lighting up with different sort of, I would say symptoms, but I guess it's more just like the way that they were acting. And so, and so he came into that place pretty sort of violent and upset. They asked me to fill out all this paperwork, which anyone who's ever put somebody into a facility knows that this paperwork is like overwhelming, but the, and, and, there's the banking section and the medical history section, and that's fine. But then there was this whole section on biography, which I was like, this makes no sense to me. Who is ever going to read 20 pages of handwritten data points for like the hundred residents in this community? And so instead I handed in the form blank and just wrote a story down. It was like one page and I really plastered the community with it because I wanted them to get to know him. And he was pretty nonverbal at this point already. He was like at that point, 12 years into his diagnosis. And Mm -hmm. so he couldn't really speak that well anymore. He couldn't introduce himself and I wanted them to know him. And the story really transformed his care. Not only did they remember it, they told each other about it. They were delighted by it. Two of his caregivers were Ethiopian and they'd had no idea that my dad had lived in Ethiopia for more than four years early on in his career with the United Nations. And they would sit there for hours and ask him what it was like to work with Emperor Haile Selassie and what the Empress was like and what his time in Ethiopia had been like. And dad loved it because he still remembered Africa yeah. from early twenties yeah. at that point, even if he didn't remember like last week or last month or last year. Right. That was really the first story that we told. And then we became essentially memory. Well became a company of storytelling. It's such an, <laughs> it's such an extraordinary description, right? Because I know those forms and those forms are like, did anyone in your family ever have cancer? Did anyone ever have a high cholesterol? Did anyone, you can look through those questions to see that really they're trying to get a medical picture, but essentially what you're describing as a journalist which is if you want someone to be interested in the cause, which in this case is your dad, they have to care about the cause. They it's to get, to garner the interest. There has to be a human connection. And so you wrote in a one pager, it sounds like the salient points of why people would care or want to connect or ways to connect with your dad. And it sounds like it made it 
much easier for the caretakers to see him as a human and a man and to connect to him. Absolutely. And I think for me, he was, when you have advanced Alzheimer's, it's just really hard for him. It was really hard for him to introduce himself, to explain himself, to, to think, to tell those stories, to look at somebody and say, oh, are you Ethiopian? I lived there. Do you like, where are you from? And maybe I've been there to make those connections is just super, super difficult. And I think for a lot of, there are not just for Alzheimer's and dementia, but for a lot of diseases, ALS, for example, is another one, which really robs you of your to make those connections yourself. And frankly, even a lot of seniors, just in terms of their own social kind of awareness or ability or want to come out of their own shells and make those connections, it becomes harder and harder in life. And so being able to have something there, that's almost like a calling card so that you don't have to do it yourself and that people can read it and be like, oh, that's cool. And make those connections themselves for us was super important. It wasn't just his paid caregiving staff who was there, but it was like everybody in the community spark to it. So it was like the guys who would come in and the podiatrist who would come in and clip their toenails and the ladies who would come and do their hair and, or give them a shave. And like the food staff people, all of them knew nothing about these residents yeah. that they were had been working with oftentimes for years. And they just treated those jobs like a series of checklists, like get through the day, must clean up Mrs. Kane's, like the food that she throws on the floor every time must like do X, Y, and Z. And it really transforms those jobs in a lot of ways when you can make those connections and have conversations with people who otherwise are almost non-conversational. The other thing that I'm thinking of, which may be just sort of like a secondary benefit is that culling someone's salient stories down into a one pager is also just a great way to sort of their lives that as people are getting older, and I do want to talk to you about how do people do this and when should they do it? And how does, what do you guys advise with that? But I'm, but I am just thinking about all the stories that I can't ask my parents. When did that happen? Who was that? What relative was that? That's a much more detailed story, but I could imagine if there were grandchildren or other generations that this one pager would be a pretty extraordinary thing to be able to extend even to your friends saying this is who my dad is is it's a really lovely way of getting to be able to know someone i think that isn't just doesn't maybe just stop with the caretakers yeah so we found that the stories because they're brief and they're only one page really sparked a lot of questions, particularly amongst families. We actually created the ability to do timelines around the stories in large part because so many people were like, but wait, what about this? What about that? They would want to ask questions and be like, but grandpa, tell me more about your service in World War II or Korea, or tell me more about like your, your early days that they just, because I think so many times grandkids don't even think of their grandparents as ever being young. And there's a way to collect that. So a place where families can come together and collect all that information, put that in one place, and then eventually print it into a book if that's what they wanted to do. And so that was like the first, the first business that we started. And it was, and I think the image of it was really lovely. And I think to some degree, it's still really needed in this world. But then of course, COVID happened and the ability to do these stories, the abilities to get into these communities, to even do them virtually because you need staff there to facilitate the virtual ones, the virtual interviews and staff were just so overwhelmed. 
everything just sort of collapsed at COVID. And so that whole sort of the bit side of the business kind of just went away, unfortunately. Yeah. So tell us about how Memory Well is supporting and helping families now. How do people come to you? What are they coming for? And are they are interviewing with you? Are they coming through a website? How, how does it work now? So now we work directly with Medicare Advantage plans who are sort of insurers and Advantage is sort of private insurance that you can opt for instead of Medicare if you so choose. And it's the way that the government has really incentivized aging in place. And so because Medicare itself doesn't offer any kind of in-home care, Advantage plans do offer that as a benefit. And so bless a lot of other benefits. Um, So we're offered through this. And so we still have some story side of the business where We work with hospice and palliative patients through insurance plans, essentially, sometimes through providers, like we work with Capital Caring in DC. We also work with Prospero Health, which is an in-home palliative care sort of division of Optum. And, but basically it's it's a natural inflection point when people sort of reach the stage of palliative or hospice to think about their life story, their legacy, what they wanna leave behind, what they wanna tell their loved ones. And so we still do those kinds of stories. And that area has been a lot less disrupted than the assisted living skilled nursing area where we once had been. But the main part of our business now is really helping Medicare Advantage plans just reduce churn. And so writers have two talents. One is writing, the other is interviewing. And so we help seniors when they've signed up for a plan, just get to know the plan better. We have a series of open-ended conversations. We ask them about themselves, which I think is something that honestly is really missing sometimes in healthcare is just listening to somebody about who you are versus what's wrong with you. What's the diagnosis? Where does it hurt? It's more of tell us about your life and tell us about your goals and tell us about your values and your hurdles and how can we help? And so we better connect them with their benefits. So if we hear, for example, a woman is this happened a few weeks ago. Her big goal this year is to like finish her granddaughter's quilt ahead of her granddaughter's wedding in September, but she's having a ton of problems with her eyesight. And so we're like, Hey, do you have an eyeglass benefit? Do you want to get started on that? Just being able to sort of connect them with those benefits that already exist. And then also the, which hopefully reduces churn. Cause right now there's an enormous amounts of churn in the system. And so getting people to stay on the plan that, that is best for them. And then also collecting a lot of that data that surrounds them, like in terms of their life outside of healthcare. So we don't do medical data or anything like that, but do you have problems with like transportation or with housing or with food, but we don't ask it that way. We ask it in like better ways that are really conversational. So instead of asking somebody, are you food insecure, which is like a terrible question that no one knows how to answer. Right. We would ask, tell us about your favorite family recipes or your favorite holiday traditions. And what are your barriers to doing those this year? So the conversations are really easy. Everyone loves them. And at the heart of it, very much the mission of putting the person rather than the diagnosis or a checklist in the center of care and being able to sort of translate that set of information and of who they are back to their payers and hopefully their providers so that those interacting with them know them as humans and that they are like treated like somebody that they know and not, and somebody, and not just a sort of, this is a recorded call. I need you to finish the survey. Please don't hang up on those terrible kinds of interactions. There's something just so incredibly humane about what you're describing, because again, I'm listening to and sort of overlaying my own experience with doctors and 
hospice and nurses and visiting nurses. And I think everybody's good intended within their limits, right? And so part of what you're describing is your staff are people who are innately curious, right? They wanna know the story and they understand the power of the story. If we can get someone talking in their humanity, we're gonna understand what it is. Maybe eyeglasses are not the most emergent medical need, but they are the most emergent life need because her life goal is to make this quilt. And how do we get that ball moving more quickly? I'm asking this question just from my experience working in hospitals. Like, is it difficult to work across states because there are different rules for different things or when it comes to memory care or are there things that are really sort of standard that you guys are be able to know about and know exist? That's an interesting question. I would say like in some ways it has been challenging knowing what issues need to be broached only by clinicians and what issues can be broached by non-clinicians. And so just being sure that we're not doing work that can only happen through clinicians and not doubling up on that work. Then there's in other States, it's sort of an opportunity. For example, in Wisconsin, they have this weird rule right now, or it's been a while, a law for a while, but for some reason, I think it's, it's really impacted during COVID where social workers can't go into the home and which seems rather terrible. And to me, but we can go into the home because we're not social workers and we're just there to like, be like, Hey, tell us about your life. And so it's, it's helped us augment the work that social workers are doing because we can tell them what we're seeing and what we're hearing. And if there is like a problem, for example, most like 90% of the time, if you ask somebody if they're a hoarder, they're going to say no. And then you visit their house and you're like, oh yeah, you're definitely a hoarder. (laughs) People often don't know, right? Like they don't really understand the illness of it. So they don't know. So they're answering the best that they can, but the model of being able to see people in their environment gives you a ton more information. Totally. And so being able to just be an extra set of eyes and ears in that, in that space. And as we're asking the questions and doing the storytelling for us going into the home and we don't often do it, to be honest, we're starting to do it more and more post COVID, but like COVID, obviously everything stopped. And then, but I think we will do some more of it working with scan plans in California with their hospice program. But it's great because you just get like a wealth of like triggers, right? So it's like, here's all these family photos that are out and you can just ask about any of them, right? And it's going to yield an incredible story of like, well, that was the time when we went there. or This was the time when we did this. And, or just was around them, like asking about their art or their books or their music or whatever it is. And so it just becomes like a great place to, for storytelling and just a way to convey who that person is and what's special to them and what makes them spark and happy. And, and that is honestly, really important information for caregiving at any point, because at any time, like with my dad, what happened with his story is like, he was so violent and people would say to him, Mr. Small, please calm down. And that's never going to work. Right. Like somebody says to you, does that technique work? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And it would frankly enrage him more when people said that what did work though, was knowing his story and being like, Hey, gray, which was his childhood nickname, your mom, Clarice, your sister, Cecily, they're coming to visit. Why don't we get you changed? Maybe you can go play golf. All of those things were things he would spark to, right? He loved golf. He loved his mom. He loved his sister. He would be like, oh, okay, yes, I want to do that, right? So having those names, having those things that are really important to them 
becomes ultimately the keys to caregiving because it's the only way you're going to get them to react and respond and to calm down if they're like my dad or to distract them from like whatever it is that's enraging them at that moment and, or making them sad at that moment or, or like triggering them at that moment. People don't realize like how important it is. And when you arrive at a facility with no, or, or when someone's coming into your house with no information about you, has no sense of who you are. And, and then they're expected to just sort of like interact with you. And there's all these complex things going on. And how do you even begin to sort all that out and successfully care give if you don't have all of that context? Yeah. <laughs> what I'm thinking about as you're talking about this is the people who are doing the caretaking, right? Oftentimes it's techs. It's not always nurses. It's not always people who've had like even one science class about how the brain atrophies with Alzheimer's, they often have lots of experiential wisdom, but maybe not the knowing of how memory works. And it's a little bit like intervening with toddlers, right? Like if a toddler is physically unsafe and kicking and all, like you can use brute force to make sure that that kid gets in the car. And that's also the same when you're in a memory care or with the elderly, there's drugs you can use and you can force them to do things, but that doesn't feel good to anyone. And that is not really about care. That is more about safety. And what you're describing, maybe not in the therapy words or the psychology words is the really sophisticated tool that we use of human connection to make someone feel like they're in regulation and they're okay. By giving the anchors to your dad about the name of his family and his childhood nickname and the hobby that he loved, that's going to land inside his system as something that you're okay. You're going golfing later. You're okay. For when my grandfather was in, he had a placement that was with a nurse and all we had to do was give him his car keys. But I have to tell you, finding his car keys after we had sold his car and was not easy, but those car keys were like a security blanket. He just wanted to know that he had the agency to leave even though he did not, he was in a wheelchair. He wasn't going to be doing any driving. What matters is bearing witness to someone's actual life experience makes them feel validated, cared about, seen and known. And in and of itself, just the listening and asking those questions is an intervention. We often say to therapists, if all you do is listen to them, that is care. And it's care that they wouldn't have gotten. So even if you can't offer any treatments, even if you can't offer any insight, holding someone's life story with them as a tether is, can be deeply transformative. And for someone whose ability to be in the present moment and collect memories, that is not going to be happening. Saying to a caretaker, here are the memories that you need from the past that are going to be those connections because- you can talk to him right now about how much he likes jelly beans, but he's not going to remember this conversation the next time you're together. If you talk about how he lived in a foreign country and how that country, that's going to calm him down in a way that is totally different. And people often remember how they feel around you. So they don't remember who you are, but they know that they love you. Mm. And, and there is some neuroscience that says that that happens with caretakers. I remember the way that I feel in my body when you come in, even though I don't know who you are. My dad lost, my dad forgot my name seven years into his diagnosis. And then he pretty much forgot who I was 
a daughter identified as like a daughter about 11 or 12 years into his diagnosis. But like the two years after that, I would walk into your room and he would still spark. He would still be like, I know you like, and I know, and I love you, but I don't know anything about you or who you are. He would still do that. The last year, there was nothing that sparked him in the last year, but, but like, it was still, and it was still like lovely to see that. And whenever he did spark to me, it still made me happy. It's something that's still really valuable there. Yeah. That's amazing. You used a word a minute ago that I wanted to make sure our audience understood. You said the word churn a couple of times. Can you explain what that means for folks who are not doing this and are not in the medical world and don't maybe inherently know? Yeah, there's just a ton of turnover, essentially, both for payers and for providers. There's just a lot of a and happiness in the system, but then B more options than ever. So it used to be 10 years ago that you would sign up for Medicare and Medicare would say to you, great, you can sign up for just plain Medicare or Medicare plus a supplemental plan for dental and things that we don't necessarily cover, or you can sign up for Medicare Advantage. And Medicare Advantage was like really only in rural areas in the United States it was Medicare part C where your coverage wouldn't extend your nearest doctor might be like a gazillion miles away. And so these private insurers would help cover those areas where there might be more coverage with doctors who accepted private insurance versus accepting Medicare. And then all of a sudden, 10 years ago, the Obama administration and then Trump really doubled down on this, said, no, we need to incentivize people to age in place. And so they threw a ton of money into Medicare Advantage and started off as being this kind of parochial backwater of programs became all of the big boys came into the area. So it was like Aetna and UHC. And suddenly there's more than 5,000 Medicare Advantage plans. So when you sign up in Florida now, there's Medicare Advantage plans alone before you even get to supplemental plans. There's 128 of them. Yeah, And so it's overwhelming, right? And anyone who's watched television, cable TV, like during open enrollment, you'll see tons of commercials with Joe Namath and Tom Selleck and Captain Kirk. And so People end up calling those numbers like five different times and they don't no idea what plan they're on. They're probably not on the plan that's best for them. And there's a lot of really rapacious actors that have come into this segment from frankly, private equity groups who then are like offering seniors a hundred dollars a month cash back, which they take from like their food benefits essentially and saying, come into our plan and you get cash for it. But it's like a terrible plan that if you actually were hospitalized, it would bankrupt you. And so there's a lot of bad actors in this space. And so there's a, like a lot of plans are struggling to really be seen and heard. And those frankly are the older plans that are regional that are provide some of the best benefits because they've been around doing this for 30, 40 years. They are mostly with integrated payer systems. So all of the do- doctors are in network and, and they exchange information. So you really want to be like probably in one of those plans or in one of the big plans that like have a lot of resources and not in those plans that have the probably the best commercials, frankly. Some of these plans experience 40, 50% churn. In the last year, Humana said they announced they were going to spend a billion dollars to try to figure out what happened during open enrollment. There's a lot of confusion with seniors. Which plan is best for me? How do we figure this out? And while we don't do that kind of education, we're not going to sit down with you and be like, this plan is best for you. We do, we will, once you signed up for a plan and we only work with certain payers, we don't want to work with the super bad guys. We will, on behalf of the payer, we call you up in a white labeled way. So you'll never know it's memory well. And we'll just have a conversation with you where, and I think this is a novel thing you talked about listening before and like the power of listening. 
will just ask you about your life, less about yourself and listen to them. And that is something that's so novel in healthcare. And it's sad that it's so novel in healthcare. It's really sad to me that the simple idea of asking somebody about who they are is a complete revolution, right? And that's something that is people are, whoa, that's like really different and weird. And yet so hugely needed because the fact of the matter is most of these plans only have digital solutions, like things like chatbots. And for a population whose average age is 74 years old, they're never going to engage with that. So having somebody just literally listen to you in a series of conversations and say, all right, tell me about yourself. Tell us about your hurdles and something like 80%. And this is a statistic that is much sort of debated, but let's say for argument's sake, 60 to 80% of those in Medicare never use their benefits. Um, The fact that they don't know that these benefits exist, don't use them. Also really sad because that is inherently like going to help them, whether it's new hearing aids or new eyeglasses or a gym membership program, or there's so many things that you could get out of those plans and that you could do that they should be doing, but they're not. So just a simple matter of education, I think is also really important. The idea is just to really, I think, help the plan better understand the needs of these folks, because the plan is all these resources and they're not applying them. And, and then also help the person be heard and seen, but put ideally better their lives by being able to take advantage of things that they've already signed up for. The other thing that I'm thinking when you're talking about it is, is to feel as though they have some agency. So thank you for answering that question so comprehensively, because I do think one of the things that people find themselves in both the the parent and anyone who is any children, any friends, any whomever is the word that you used, which is, it is wildly overwhelming. I don't know. It's like joining the world of competitive figure skating overnight. I don't even know where to get the skates that the learning curve is almost like a full-time job. And what I know in the world that I do is that when I get overwhelmed, my brain shuts down, my body shuts down. I feel helpless. I feel hopeless. And I maybe I'm going to put that pamphlet away or wonder if I have, am eligible for glasses. I'm not going to come back to that for a while because it was too much for me. We, I'm not trying to rant on how we do healthcare in this country, but the privatization of it does mean it's not streamlined and there are lots and lots and lots of choices. And as you said, not everybody, there's some bad actors out there who are looking to take advantage. And whether it's that, that the elderly don't understand technology, what you're talking about is people who have actual brain deficit. So being able to remember when they were in the army is it's not even a necessarily reliable thing to have someone. And we've learned this again, there's data on this, that if you're going to a hospital, we already know that you're going to have elevated heart rate. And because a hospital is not a park, it's a place where people are sick and where they're generally treating you as though you are are someone who is going to need some sort of intervention So going into a hospital already, your brain is on in a state of alertness and on the defensive. What we say to folks is in the therapy world, if you're going somewhere where you're going to need to really take in a lot of medical information, let's say you just got a new diagnosis, take a friend, but they don't have to be a a caseworker. They don't even need to have it, but they're going to be able to listen with more neutral ears and will not be taking everything in with the lens of defensiveness. 
One of the things that used to exist more and more was case management, just a social worker that either worked in the Medicaid office or worked for the companies or worked for the hospital who was going to translate some of this for you. But what we see more and more is that case management is the thing that gets cut because it doesn't actually generate any revenue. What you are describing, again, people who are encountering your folks who are talking to them like humans, is they're getting a little bit of that human care and that calming sensation of, yeah, you have a lot of choices, but people make these choices. These choices can be made. It feels really critically important on a lot of levels to me. So it's cool. We're doing research with the University of California at San Francisco, where we're doing our first integration with Epic, which is the largest electronic health record provider in the country. And there's a lot of cases with seniors, what often can happen in hospital settings is delirium. It's like instantaneous and pass in it's, it's temporary kind of yeah. dementia where people are like so freaked out by everything going on. They know, like they kind of lose it and they just don't know what's happening and they're really confused. And, and that I think is in part because they're sick. And then also in part, because the stress of being in a hospital Absolutely. is like really hard. So we are doing these stories while they're in acute care. And the average stay, I think for the senior acute care unit is something like five to seven days. So we'll do a story with like usually their caregivers and them if they can. And then oftentimes these seniors are are then transferred out to long-term care facilities where either they're there long-term or they're short-term to do some sort of rehab before they can go home. And what's happened during COVID is that usually you have caregivers who come and pick you up or go sit with you in the ambulance, get you to that new place, bring sheets from home and photos and all the things, and then tell the nursing staff there that they don't like the green jello. They only like the red jello or whatever it is. And and then that person feels settled in, right? And they feel good. Now in the era of COVID, that's almost impossible. You can't have people in the ambulance. You can't have people even in the nursing facilities these days. It just doesn't happen. And they're getting a ton of bounce backs into hospitals because these people are remaining delirious or still are hyper stressed. And they're they're getting sicker again, coming back into the hospital, which then hospitals get fined for. And so the idea of doing the stories to ease the transition is like the sort of first area we're focusing on, where instead of having a family member there, the story goes there. And then the staff at the facility can read the story and be like, Hey, I know you don't like the green jello. I know that you love the red socks. We're going to put on the game tonight for you. And I just got a puppy and I see that you train dogs and I want all the advice on how to train this dog. Right. And be able to interact with them so that at least they feel sort of seen and known and, and does that affect the bounce backs. But that's one area where I'm super excited and I think it's really exciting. But the other area where I think it's super exciting is just putting it into the electronic health record across the board. Yeah. And so that everybody interacting with this human, whether it's a nurse in the ER or a a guy who's like administering your CAT scan to you in this big banging, scary machine can say to you like, Hey, like I see you're a carpenter and I like, I love like carving. Do you have any tips on this? Or, Hey, I know that you love the Rangers or the bears or whatever your team is. And let's talk about those sports or whatever it is. That's something that can distract you and build that quick empathetic bond and make them trust you a little bit and make them feel seen and heard. I think is fundamentally what's missing in healthcare. And uh, totally a hundred percent. And that study sounds really fascinating and totally needed. And it makes perfect sense to me that 
what we're always trying to do is to bring people's bodies and minds back to a state of neutral. And when I worked in a hospital, a lot of what we talked about was no one's body and mind, no one, not even the guy who's coming in to deliver coffee gets to be a state of neutral. I want to ask, cause I'm want to be respectful of our time. If people are listening to this and they are like, oh my God, this is what I need. I want to talk to Jay. I want to talk to her people. I want to, how are people going to get to you? Do you do private work? It sounds like you, you have some plans that you work with. How do people come to your memory well and benefit from it from the outside? Or are we asking people, Hey, just keep your eye out. It may be coming to your community. Unfortunately, during COVID, we really moved away from working with skilled nursing and this is living. And I don't know if that's something we're really ever going to get back to. I hope we do, frankly, but we work mostly with Medicare Advantage plans. And frankly, you wouldn't even know that it's us that's doing it because it's all white labeled. And so it's it would seem like the plan that's doing it to you. We do direct to consumer stories. We don't market it. We've never sold it, yeah. but we can sign up for one or you can buy one essentially. It's really just like family and friends that like, cause people hear about us and they're like, can you tell my dad's story? We do it that way, but it's rare that we actually do it. it and it's only actually sometimes when we talk about it publicly, like on your podcast that, that we would even get people would even know about it to do it. Mm. Um, but yes, we, we, you can sign up that way. If for some reason you're not part of any of the plans that we're working with or anything else about So, but maybe one thing as people are looking into plans, see if the plan includes, it won't say memory well, but it will say something I imagine about collecting narrative stories. Yeah. So the benefit that we're working with is really just hospice and palliative. And so right now, the only places where we're working and starting in January would be in California and LA, in DC, in the DC area, and in Wisconsin around like hospice and palliative care. We'd love to explain that. And, but if you happen to live in any of those three states or those cities, I should say, um, and you're in hospice or palliative care, then there's a good chance you could be asked if you'd like to have your story told. Yeah. But in, in knowing about it, you can also ask, do you guys work with memory and, and sort of see if there is a, because they'll know that us through like the, her, the payers and the providers will know us through our name. But generally speaking, once we start to do the work, we would just say, Hey, we're here as part of your team with Prospero, your team with scan to tell your story. And we wouldn't say it's memory. Well, cause it got too confusing. People were like, what? There's like a storytelling yeah. thing. A lot of the grief and loss work that I work in is one person who's come up with a good idea that then gets foundation funding or something so that they can widen the circle because it's really difficult for me to see how this would be a hard argument to make that this work that you are providing doesn't have an immediate that everyone can see positive result. Lucky are the folks who get to choose plans that this exists for. My hope for your work would be that this would be a standard of care. So Anshala, that that can happen at some point, but that, yeah, it just seems to me if there's somebody out there with really deep pockets, that's listening to the podcast and wondering how could they make a difference in the world of grief and loss, not just the person who's being cared for. It's also the carers, the turnover inside facilities, inside organizations, inside insurance companies is so high for all the people who are, who touch the helping field, 
particularly during COVID, the grind has been extraordinary. And what's really difficult is you can't just bring somebody else in. It has a level of scale and learn. there's a learning curve. So being able to preserve the caretakers and the folks who are, you know, taking you to your MRI and being able to have a conversation because they saw on your sheet that you're a Red Sox fan, it seems like a really significant, I don't like low cost lift, if that makes sense. You're not having to get a new piece of medical equipment in order to help. And it seems to me, it also would be really helpful for the families, the people who can't be there knowing if their dad is going to get an MRI, but to know that in his chart, there are ways to help him soothe and calm him down. And it's reminding me of when my kids went to daycare. It was like, what do we need to know about this child? Well, he doesn't eat popcorn. He has to have his blanket with him all, at all times. And if, if he's acting out, give him the Legos. Like those sorts of things can really be the difference between an interaction going well and not well. This is such exciting work. I knew I was going to be really excited by this conversation. And I'm sure our listeners are going to be excited about it. And I just, I hope that as it's impacting people are watching and listening and asking you guys to expand this. It just seems incredibly, incredibly needed and very heart-centered for everybody who encounters it. Thanks so much. Yeah, we appreciate it. It's it's sort of stunning to me in the first years that we did this. So many people said to us, this is a no-brainer for healthcare. I totally understand everybody should be doing this in healthcare. But then immediately they're like, so how do we pay for this? How do we make money, how do we make money out of this? And it's it's a hard thing because it's everybody thinks it's necessary, but like we have a healthcare system that's set up entirely around reimbursements and making money and, and finding a way to have, have this fit. We've really had to like kind of work at like a business model that now with this, the Medicare Advantage work we do, everyone's like, yes, totally see the return on investment. Totally understand like why Medicare Advantage plans pay for this because they're suffering from so much churn. But it took us a long time to get to a business model where this made sense and still had, still got to like the core of, yes, this still puts the person in the center of care. This still gets that information and, and conveys it. It's just finding the right way to do it. Right. And like, and I think one of the things that can happen in the world of people who are doing caretaking is that they miss that larger business model. So I'm really hopeful that you're thinking and talking about this there will be really large level change. I'm so grateful for this conversation and I'm sorry for the chaos of all the noise that's in the back. I feel like we've had every noise, like drills and hammers and police cars and leaf blowers, but real life conversations in the real world. And I'm just really appreciative for this work. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Jay. Thanks for the conversation and thanks for doing the work. It's really, really inspiring.